Ptichka by Laura Mauro. The night Marta finds out she's pregnant, she cries. In the yellowish light of an old desk lamp, Marta rifles through an NHS pamphlet. Information for migrants giving birth in the UK, as if they're a different species. She adds up the cost of the many and varied tests recommended by the antenatal clinic. Urinalysis, nuchal scan, rhesus factor, strange words in a strange alphabet. She scribbles it all down on a notepad, coming up with a figure that far exceeds her wage. For Marta, free medical care seems like a distant dream, a long-ago rumour, though it's barely been two years since the British government voted to exclude people like her. She stares down at the pregnancy test in her hands, as if sheer force of will can spirit the money into being. And then she cries. She cries so hard and for so long that the Sri Lankan woman in the downstairs flat starts banging on the ceiling, calling up the stairs for her to please shut up or she'll call their landlord. When her baby starts crying, a barrage of florid bilingual curses echo in the corridor, drifting in beneath her front door. And Marta has never felt so alone in all her life. At 5am, Marta goes to work. She sits alone at the back of the bus, trying to ignore the fermented piss stink left over from the night late night crowd. It's still dark outside and she dozes, face pressed up against the cold window. She dreams fitfully of the sweet English boy who disappeared into thin air, who, for one night, held her close, told her she was beautiful, left her pregnant and scared in a country she's trying very hard to think of as home. Marta has a minimum wage job and a roof over her head. She might have had those things in Russia too, but she still believes she can have a better future here if she works hard enough. She spends nine hours serving up chicken nuggets and chips to uninterested customers and their unbearable offspring. This isn't forever, she tells herself. Better times will come. She stops by an internet cafe on the way home, partly for the warmth. On a forum for expats, she reads about clinics, illegal setups offering checkups for uninsured migrants undercutting NHS prices. The doctors are questionably qualified or long retired. But in the absence of a British passport or a lottery win, she's out of better options. There are other places, places that end pregnancies. But she's not sure she wants that. Not yet. Marta scribbles the phone number down on a scrap of paper, hides it inside her inside pocket. She deletes her search history before she leaves. It's impossible to know who's watching, and it's best to be paranoid than stupid. People like her have been arrested for much less. The obstetric clinic is tucked away above a laundrette in Mile End. It's someone's flat, she realises, as she comes in through the door. A scattering of posts lies unopened on the doormat, bearing the grubby shoe prints of a day's worth of patience. An unsmiling woman instructs her to wait, so she takes a seat in the narrow hallway, feet tucked beneath her chair, feeling like a nervous child outside the headmaster's office. At the foot of the stairs, an old birdcage hangs from a hook nailed into the wall. Inside, a cockatiel huddles on its perch, plumage ragged, and watching Marta with baleful eyes. The perches are crusted white with old shit. The stink of it makes her faintly nauseous. She knows the fluttering in her abdomen is just nerves, but it frightens her all the same. Uh, Miss, uh, 
Berejnaya. Marta looks up. The unsmiling woman stands at the clinic door, clipboard in hand. They're alone in the hallway, and the mangling of her surname seems redundant. But the illusion of propriety must be important to her. She leads Marta into the clinic, which overlooks the street. She can see the blurred motion of cars through the gaps in the dusty Venetian blinds. There's a worn-out examination couch pushed up against the wall, and a table stacked high with plastic storage boxes filled with drugs. Marta wonders how long ago they expired. The doctor is an elderly English man, hair-stained nicotine yellow. He has her sit on the couch while the unsmiling woman, evidently a nurse of some kind, wraps a blood pressure cuff around her arm. You speak English? she demands. The space beneath her eyes is bruised, blue and hollow, like she hasn't slept in days. The machine thrums as the cuff contracts, squeezing her arm tight. Yes, Marta says, grimacing. The nurse grunts in acknowledgement, glancing at the reading on the screen, noting it down on her clipboard. She asks an array of questions. Last menstrual period, family history of diabetes, any unusual bleeding? Marta answers politely and concisely, and although her curdled milk expression never changes, the nurse seems somewhat pacified. You get so many Polish girls in here, the nurse says. They get themselves knocked up by British men. Got wives already, dirty bastards. They come in snivelling because they thought they'd get a passport. Don't speak a lick of English either. I'm not Polish, Marta says. Not much of a difference, the nurse says, without malice. The examination is the kind of mundane tick-bock experience Marta had expected. The doctor coats her bare abdomen in clear gel. The ultrasound machine is as old and worn as the doctor himself, and although it looks barely functional, the screen is clear enough. A white blur, abstract and meaningless, forms the centre of the picture. It seems impossible to Marta that this bright smudge is a baby. The doctor frowns, adjusts the angle of the wand, pushing it so hard into Martha's belly that she wants to smack the wand right out of his hands. And outside, the cockatiel kicks into a chorus of squawking. The nurse storms over the door and slams it shut. Finally, gravely, the doctor looks up and says, there's something wrong with the foetus. The doctor suspects anencephaly. He prints her off a page from the internet and she's all able to glean is that her baby, that formless white smudge on a grubby screen, is somehow developing wrong. There's an anatomical diagram printed blurrily at the foot of the page. The baby's face ceases entirely just above the eyes. There's no skull, no cavity in which a brain might sit, no light in the eyes. Poor little frog child, she thinks, running her finger across the diagram, smearing the wet ink. The doctor tells her that a baby so profoundly deformed would almost certainly be stillborn. She stares numbly at the long outdated posters tacked to the clinic walls, the stacks of home printed leaflets. It's out of her hands now. Do what you think is best, she says. On the tube home, Marta rubs at the sore spot where he'd injected her. Expect cramps and heavy bleeding, he told her, wiping away a bead of blood welling from the wound like a tiny red eye. If you don't stop bleeding in a couple of days or the pain becomes unbearable, go to A&E. 
It surely had to be a joke, Marta thinks. He must know the law, must understand her situation, or he wouldn't be running a place like this. If she can't afford proper prenatal care, how can she possibly afford A&E? There's a sharp, sudden twinge in her stomach. In the clinic, she'd counted out the notes carefully, pressing a wad of grubby twenties into the doctor's nicotine-stained palm. He'd refused payment for the injection. Think of it as a favour, he said. Go home, get it over with. You're unlucky this time. Next time will be better. Marta grits her teeth against the cramps, ignoring the questioning gaze of the woman sitting opposite. Marta's mother once told her that she'd been born under unlucky stars. Mama, she thinks, pressing a rueful hand to her stomach. Why couldn't you have held on till morning? The blood never comes. The cramps subside before midnight, and she sleeps that night with a bath towel spread out beneath her, anticipating a terrible mess. But when she wakes, there's no blood, not even a drop. Her stomach aches a little, but even that is gone by the time she gets to work. She crams a clutch of maxi pads into her handbag just in case. Three days pass, and still no blood, no cramps. She digs the paper scrap from her coat pocket and calls the clinic... She goes through to voicemail. She goes to work, because there's nothing else she can do, ambling blindly through another shift. It's late by the time she gets home, and the Sri Lankan woman, Aisha, Marta has signed for her post more than once, is leaning out the living room, smoking a cigarette. A child's propped up on the sill and stares placidly at Marta. Marta says good evening, and is rewarded with a curt nod. Upstairs, the flat is freezing. She switches on the space heater and peels off her uniform, leaving it puddled on the floor. She makes a crawl into bed, but stops, catching sight of herself reflected in the window. Her belly has grown. She turns slowly, marvelling at the way her skin is stretched drum tight. She's been dazed lately, paying little attention to her body except for the increasingly distant promise of blood. She stares at her reflection, at her two long limbs and fine dark hair. Her swollen stomach is awkward on her thin frame. She reaches a hand out to the window, tracing her belly in the faint condensation. There's a sudden thump, and the rattle of loose glass as something hits the window hard. The impact reverberates up her arm. <clears throat> she yelps, leaping back from the window. Her feet tangle in the mess of clothes. She yanks the shirt from round her ankles, heart thudding hard in her chest, and she peers up at the window. The sky is thick with black cloud, swallowing the moon entirely. Imprinted against the outside of the window, almost obscured by condensation, is the pale ghost of outstretched feathers, a chalk-outlined smear detailing the impact of a bird against the glass. Marta pulls on her trousers and coat and scurries downstairs. Aisha's front window is closed now, curtains drawn, the remains of a cigarette smouldering on the sill outside. She tiptoes barefoot around to the back of the house, down an alley filled with two weeks' worth of uncollected black bags. Even in this cold weather, the stink is all eye-watering. And there, lying still beneath Aisha's kitchen window, is the bird. Its neck lists at an unnatural angle, but its eyes are open still, gazing up at her with what she imagines to be reproach. Back home, it is said that when a bird hits the window, a death is on the way. She ducks low, breathing white into the dark, and scoops the bird up in both hands. 
Its heart beats against her palms, frantic at first, growing ever slower as she sits, shivering, running a gentle down, gentle thumb down its dark, glossy plumage. Skvoretz. She doesn't know the English name. Behind her, the kitchen window creaks open. It's dead, Aisha says, appraising the broken little thing in Marta's hands. Her mouth is curled into a familiar frown. Aisha never smiles. Throw it over the fence. Let the foxes have it. It's still alive, Marta says. I can feel its heart beating. Aisha shrugs. There's a flare of bright light as she strikes a match, lights another cigarette. It'll be dead soon, she says. A grey plume billows out from between her parted lips. Marta doesn't know how she can afford to smoke as much as she does. They sit like that for a time, Aisha silently smoking, Marta cradling the dying bird, her bare toes slowly turning numb. For ten minutes, the bird perseveres. Why? Marta wonders. Its neck is broken. Doesn't it understand how hopeless it is? Eventually, Aisha's baby starts crying and she departs without a word, pulling the window shut behind her. The child's insistent wail continues, muted now behind glass. Abruptly, the bird's heart stops. Marta gets to her feet and lays the bird beneath the bushes at the back of the garden. Maybe the foxes will find it, she thinks. Or maybe it'll lie there, too frozen to rot, preserved and perfect until spring comes. She looks out of the window the next morning. The bird is a small black shape just visible beneath the frost-rimed leaves. Not even the foxes have touched it. Marta steps out of the shower, glancing at her changing form in the steam-clouded mirror. The stretch marks are vivid in the light, blue lines like veins making her, marking her sudden growth. She swears she's grown bigger since last night. She places her palm, gentle, just above the concavity of her navel, tapping her index figure twice against the tight round gourd of her belly. For a long moment, nothing happens, and she feels terribly stupid, embarrassed at her whimsy. Was she truly expecting her child, poor, deformed thing, hanging on in spite of the doctor's intervention, to tap back, to understand her intentions, her maternal Morse code? Tap twice if you're still alive. And then there's a ripple of motion inside her, like the stirring of damp, newborn wings. And she smiles, amazed at this persistence, at this struggle to stay alive. She whispers a promise in the language of her mother. Keep fighting, little one. I will keep you safe. Over two months, her belly grows, far quicker than it should. She lies when people ask her how far along she is. She's 22 weeks pregnant, but looks almost ready to burst, abdomen ripe and round with fluid. She goes to work because she can't afford not to, and maternity leave is a luxury she won't be afforded. She wears her old uniform until the buttons gape wide and her boss grudgingly gives her a new one on the promise that she'll pay for it later. Nobody asks where the father is. Every day, Marta performs the same ritual, two taps above her navel, protruding now like a tiny thumb. And every day, he answers, growing ever stronger. She feels him high in her gut, tight and coiled, shifting occasionally when his position no longer suits him. Some nights she lies in her bed, distended belly gently pulsing, and wonders if the doctor got it wrong. 
Marta goes into labour on a Sunday afternoon. She's standing in the canned goods aisle in Morrison's when the first contractions come, a raw, tearing sensation, like something newly awoken inside of her, trying with tooth and claw to force its way out. She has nothing meaningful to compare the pain to. She's never given birth, never so much as broken a bone, but she knows, as she doubles over, that this is not normal. The woman beside her pauses to stare briefly before returning to the infinitely more important business of comparing the calorie content of the tinned beans. Marta bites back a gasp. She drops her basket and stumbles down the aisle, wiping her streaming eyes with the back of her hand. A warm wetness runs down the inside of her thighs. She knows it's blood. She can smell it, coppery and obscene. And everyone is staring at her now, watching the madwoman strumble past the checkouts, out into the cold street. Somehow she finds her way home. But by the time she gets there, her vision is swimming at the edges, hands trembling as she tries to slot the key into the lock. And after a few fumbling attempts, Aisha comes to the door. Her face is indecipherable as always, but Marta thinks she looks mildly irritated. The, the baby, Marta says, indicating the bulge of her belly, the dark reddish stain on her jeans. It's too early. Go to the hospital then, Aisha says. Pain splits Marta through her middle. She grasps Aisha's wrist, fingers tight. Aisha's skin is cold and dry, rough like tree bark. I haven't got any money, Marta says through gritted teeth. And Aisha nods. She understands. Marta has spent long nights kept awake by the rasping, wheezing coughs of Aisha's child and the grip of bronchitis and Aisha's feet thumping against the floorboards, pacing endlessly up and down. There's no NHS for people like them. Not anymore. There's salvation only for those who can afford to pay for it. Aisha guides her inside, where it's only marginally warmer. The communal hallway smells of dust and old, damp carpet. She all but drags Marta up the stairs and fumbles in Marta's pocket for the front door key. Avanti is sleeping, she says, when Marta glances questioningly at Aisha's door. She'll be okay for a while. They stumble into the bedsits, the pair of them like drunks after a long night out. Where's the other one? Aisa asks, looking around. That Colombian girl. Deported, Marta answers. She crawls into the bed and curls up tight. In November. Only me now. Aisha leaves Marta writhing on the bed while she hunts through the cupboards, the bathroom, picking through Marta's meagre supplies for anything useful. And when she returns, she's got an armful of old towels, a full kettle, a plastic washing-up bowl. I've done this before, Aisha says, laying the towels beneath Marta. She's no less terse, but she is the only familiar face Marta knows. As she bleeds steadily, breathes hard, Aisha's face grows hazy at the edges, a smeared watercolour, the puffy margins of her cheeks indistinct in the bright afternoon light. Marta doesn't feel Aisha pull her jeans off, though she does hear the sharp intake of breath, sees the bright gleam of panic in Aisha's eyes, and she wonders just how much blood there is. Her little bedroom smells like a slaughterhouse. Save for the percussion of her chattering teeth, she's silent, soaked through with sweat, but colder than she's ever been in her life. Her belly seems to pulse visibly, a living thing, pale and ugly. Pain wrenches at her insides. 
She's being sliced open, torn apart. In her delirium, she imagines her belly is splitting in the middle, skin peeling back, a bloody flower, her baby pink and pristine at the centre. Marta hears herself crying out. She sounds very far away. Aisha places a broad hand on Marta's forehead. You have a bad fever, she says, shaking her head. Her dark fingers are smeared with bright blood. You need the hospital. I can't pay, Marta mumbles, her head lolls to the side. She can't lift it. Her muscles are useless, paralysed by the pain. Everything seems a little too bright, a little too liquid, like none of it is real. She peers up at the window, at the pale bird ghost imprinted on the outside, a stark burning white against the blue sky. It's still there when she squeezes her eyes shut, floating in the dark space behind her eyes. Marta opens her mouth wide in a silent scream, tasting the salt of her sweat as it runs down her face. Something tears deep inside her, unanchored. She can hear Aisha telling her to push, and she's bursting, coming apart at the seams, raw and burning and dizzy. And just like that, it's over. The room is quiet, save for her own ragged breathing. The baby should be crying. They always cry in films. Let let me see him, she says, breathless. Aisha's staring down at the bloody towel bundled in her arms. Um, His head, she mumbles, appalled. My son, Marta insists. Her lips feel numb. The words are lumping in her mouth. Give him to me. Aisha places the bundle in Marta's outstretched arms. He's so light, but she can scarcely bear his weight. Her arms feel insubstantial as she lifts him up, seeking the face beneath the red-stained folds. He's perfect, her son. His black feathers are slick with fluids, eyes hard and unblinking. Beautiful Ptichka, small enough to fit in the concavity of her cupped palms. She smiles up at Aisha, lips pulled tight over her teeth, and says distantly, He has his father's eyes. The other woman's eyes are wide with horror, bright with tears. It's dead, she says. Can't you see? Marta shifts her son to the crook of her elbow, places two fingers on the bony arch of his chest, and taps gently. Hollow bird bones reverberate, and there's his pulse, slow beneath her fingers like the ripple of tiny wings. No, Marta whispers, he's still alive. I can feel his heart beating. 